So, good evening, everyone. It's great to welcome you here to the LSC. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director, and it's my pleasure to welcome back Nate Silver. Uh, Nate is, I think, well-known to all of you. That's why you're here as an author, uh, as a both somebody who has conducted but also is a leading arbiter of polling and the science of prediction, which is the theme of his book. Nate uh, is here for the LSE Media Alumni Group, Public Conversation, and he's back at the LSE after spending a year here in the late 90s while an undergraduate student at the University of Chicago. It's a testament to his success that he's here again so soon. We usually have to wait a long time for our <laughs> alumni to become famous. <laughs> Nate's topic tonight is the one that has made his name, prediction. His website, 538.com, now part of the New York Times, and his book, The Signal and the Noise, have addressed in different ways the fundamental question of how certain we can be about the future. He famously, accurately predicted the result of the 2012 U.S. presidential election across all 50 states and for that matter, a variety of other races that were in the running simultaneously with the presidential election. Many of you might have been here in this room the week before the election to hear a panel discussion of the forthcoming American election, which, among other things, included the recommendation that you pay attention to 538.com and Nate Silver's polls as by far the most accurate. We were quizzed by a couple of students from the audience, well, why not the polls that were actually outliers suggesting at that point that Romney um, was um, in the running for the, the presidency, Moore is going to win the presidency. Um, and the answers were that uh, looking at the set of polls, Nate was able to discern not just a better prediction, it wasn't just a majority vote, but factors that were shaping the predictions and give a, an account of why it was that some polls were more accurate and other polls um, systematically inaccurate in relation to the election and was going to be successful in calling it. Well, he was remarkably successful in that respect. But in the book, Nate discusses um, in some detail, it's in some detail, it's a big, thick book for those of you who haven't read it. Um, and I can tell you based on the first 238 pages, it's terrific. I suspect it's terrific the rest of the way through, but I could only promise that part of it is terrific. Um, and Nate discusses in detail a range of very real philosophical and practical problems of trying to map the future. And part of what's engaging about his work is that he's thinking about underlying theoretical issues. He's thinking about the um, statistics, literally, not just the math, but the Bayesian statistics of this. And he's thinking about the practice of making predictions, making them in relationship to various kinds of different dilemmas and practical questions and to different kinds of audiences and potential consumers. What Marx's work out is the ability to understand the different kinds of weaknesses that can cause predictions to fail. On the one hand, he uses Bayesian logic to improve the statistical underpinnings of individual models. On the other, he recognizes that we are let down more often by a lack of imagination than by a lack of numeracy or numbers themselves. I'm sure that this discussion will be illuminating, and I hope in particular to hear something about the relationships between the social sciences and the art and science of prediction. I'll leave Nate to speak for a while, and then we'll open things up for questions. <coughs> I'll ask a few questions in an early set of exchanges with Nate, and then we'll open it for your questions. If you're asking a question, I do ask that you wait for a microphone to come to you. 
And for those of you on Twitter, the hashtag for tonight's event is hash LSE538. Please join me in welcoming Nate Silver. Thank you. So I'll be, I'll be very brief in my, uh, <clears throat> in my opening remarks. I just want to say, first of all, it's really terrific to be back here at, at LSC. It's kind of a part of my, my heritage. I have, uh, I think, some of the residue of LSC in my, in my blood. It affects how I see things and view things. Uh, kind of looking, looking back now, and it's been, uh, it's been 14 years, I guess, since I left. There are uh, two things that stand out. Uh, number one was the, the quality of teaching that I received here. Um, U of C is a, is a great school, but I have to say, some of the lectures I was given here stuck with me a lot longer, and it demonstrates that you can have a, a great research institution that's a great teaching institution as well. Um, the other one, because U of C has an unofficial motto called uh, Where Fun Goes to Die. Um, <laughs> not very true here. When I got in, uh, uh, my cabbie found I was at the High Holborn dorm, right, when the West End, I guess as it still is, was a very popular place to hang out. My, my taxi driver was like, you're not going to get any work done whatsoever this year, are you, mate? Uh, but, uh, but no, this is a place where people can, can uh, use the city as a laboratory, um, have a lot of fun. I found, I was looking for kind of my old haunts last night, that my sense of London geography improved as after I'd had a pint or so. Um, probably state-specific memory of the year I spent here. But I did get a great education as well. This is good. Have we got this on film? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not to advocate a course for you guys, study really, really hard. I know we're getting to exam periods soon. Um, but let me show you, to put a couple things in context. One thing I, I worry about uh, a little bit is that people think that doing these forecasts are, are magic. And really, so let me show you that. Well, there's the very clever. It's very Scandinavian, I think, the UK book cover. Um, but here were the forecasts that we had on Election Day, November 6, 2012. So we get credit for getting all... 50 states, right? Although if you look more carefully, what we have is a, is a scale of probability here. And as simple as it sounds, uh, thinking probabilistically is, is really hard for people to do intuitively a lot of the time. It's something, certainly it's very hard for, for the news media to do, to couch things in terms of probabilities. So we get credit for, for calling Florida right. And we hit Obama with a 50.1% chance of winning. In 100,000 simulations, he won like 50,203 or something. So basically a, a coin flip, but still, you know, you'd rather get your coin flips right than wrong. Um, at the same time, in the context of a lot of macroeconomic problems or problems in, in other parts of the discipline, um, the 538 model is, is pretty simple, where basically we are just averaging the polls. Um, we do give more weight to polls that use a better methodology or they've been more reliable in the past. So it's not quite a simple average, but even taking just a simple approach would have gotten you to most of the same place. Um, we're counting 270. That's how many votes you need to clinch the electoral college. Um, if it's really close, you have to figure out where the combinations of different states a candidate might win. That's a little bit tricky, but still uh, not as tricky as many problems that, that you guys are wrestling with. And the third is making some effort to account for the uncertainty or the margin of error. Um, hence, we think of things in terms of probabilities and not in terms of absolutes. Um, but this relatively simple approach, basically a lot of times just saying that, look, Obama's ahead in the polls in Ohio, so he's probably a favorite to win, caused a huge amount of consternation in the American news media. Uh, so here's a, a slide demonstrating how big a deal it became. This is a humble brag slide where it's, uh, it's my name on the one hand and Vice President Biden's on the other. So right about there where I went on The Daily Show, I was briefly searched for more often than uh, the President Biden was. Although I want to 
assure you that Americans did keep some sense of perspective, where, where this is Justin Bieber's home, <laughs> as compared to, to both of us. So let's be, let's be a little humble here uh, as compared to the Biebs. Uh, but with that said, I just want to uh, leave as much time as possible for, for, for conversations. And, and uh, again, thank you for having me here today. Okay. Great. Thanks, Nate, for that introduction. Um, and the, the disproportion between the brief introduction of the long book is a message to go <laughs> buy it, read it. You can buy it here and have it autographed at the end of this. But let me ask a question that just starts right from where you were. Um, your recognition of the greater fame, if not political influence, of Justin Bieber. And um, part of what you're doing is pointing out the ways in which graphical representation influences how we think about statistics. And I'd welcome you to say a little bit more about that and about how you see um, polls in particular and statistical evidence in general being represented in the media and whether we have a great learning process about being able to critically be alert to the graphical representation questions or not. Well, so, <clears throat> so one thing about the New York Times is that they have a whole team of data and interactive journalists that I work with. And at first, they would call themselves... Uh, journalists and, and not designers, and I thought it was a little bit uh, pretentious. Um, but if you look at what they do, what they're doing is taking complex information and trying to convey it to people in a way that gets at the essence of it, but without sacrificing truth and accuracy. And that's kind of the essence of what any journalist um, ought to be doing. I'm not sure that actually occurs so much in political coverage in particular. I've kind of become uh, more alert to the fact that uh, you know, I began 538 because I thought that the political coverage basically sucked in the United States. So there's an implicit or rather explicit role here as a, as a media critic. Um, but you know, no matter what the discipline, whether it's in, in, uh, in the context of, of mainstream journalism or in academia, um, visualizing data tends to, be, tends to be a very useful skill to have. Where um, when a paper, so I kind of make fun of myself because it's a relatively simple model, all things considered, at least conceptually. Um, but simplicity is not necessarily a bad thing. There are a lot of uh, uh, bad papers and a lot of bad analyses that will couch things in obscure language to obfuscate that uh, either there have been a lot of choices that the modeler has made, and those assumptions might be robust or might not, but they're not going to tell you either way, um, or just to kind of confuse the understanding of people. So I think if you can communicate things, things clearly, and visual communication is something where, um, you know, our species, our visual processing skills are, are quite strong. To see patterns in data, I talk in the book about weather forecasters, for example, and they're a real example of success. But partly is that if you go and visit a weather forecasting office, doesn't sound like the most exciting thing, but it's kind of cool. Um, they're playing around with all types of, of flat screen monitors and using their visual acuity to, to alter their projections. Our sense of space and geography is, is not something which we've been able to have computers replicate very easily. Um, and so those representations, I think, are, are really quite key. So weather's great. I like the discussion of the Weather Channel and all the, the predictions and things. One of the things that I remember in the book, at least linked to that, is the discussion of a practical user's point of view. Um, that is, the, the um, statistical accuracy and the accuracy from the point of view of somebody who wants to know whether to wear um, you know, their rubber boots that day or whatever. And, and you went back, it, and well, somebody else went back, actually, and, and found old data on forecasts and looking at all of this and so forth. Could you say a little bit more about the relationship between um, having a particular kind of practical user in mind for information and the abstract notion of truth or, um, as it appears in accuracy. Well, you know, I'm not sure that, that 
truth is an abstract notion, okay. right? I think people, you know, so I'm not a postmodernist by, by any means, I suppose. Um, so in weather forecasting, what you see is that the National Weather Service in the United States puts out forecasts that are, that are quite good and that are well calibrated statistically. So when they say there's a 20% chance of rain, um, over the long run, out of all the 20% forecasts they have, it really does rain one out of five times. Um, but people take that information, they free ride <laughs> off that information, the, uh, the channels like the Weather Channel or local TV forecasts, and they permute it in ways that make it less accurate but more marketable. So they invariably trump up the chance of rain. It has what's called a wet bias. If there's a forecast that comes out of the, out of the weather, for, uh, weather office is 50-50 for a chance of rain or snow, um, they'll push it toward one side or another. They're worried that if they, if they say 50-50, people think, oh, they're being wishy-washy and indecisive. Um, so they tweak this forecast by making it less accurate instead because people kind of are bad at looking at things in terms a probability. Um, they think that if, uh, if it's supposed to be sunny and you don't bring an umbrella and it rains, they get very mad at you, right? Where it's the other way around. They're like, oh, how nice, you know. What, right. a, what a bonus. It didn't rain when I was, it was supposed to right. today. So, so they're, they're not accurate, but in a specific direction. Well, so, um, so part more of this often is, is than I, not. Think, I think, so part of 538's success, and it gets a ton of traffic and so forth, is that, you know, we're treating the consumer with, um, with some respect and also mm-hmm. saying it's, it's really hard to... Uh, to fudge a conclusion on the one hand, say, oh, well, cheap, but only, only this much, um, and for that not to become a slippery slope. I think of people in, in politics, like the Romney campaign, mm-hmm. for example. Um, one big mistake they made, among, among many, um, is that they had, they had their pollsters also serving as their public spokespeople. Um, so they're, they're pollsters who are spending half their time trying to bullshit and spin to the public, and then you kind of step back and say, oh, I need to give an objective analysis um, an accurate analysis to my candidate, I think it's very hard to step back and forth between uh, those modes. Right, so the, the voices are, are different there. And, there, and in political coverage in the press, too, there are statements of, um, about predictions under conditions of uncertainty, and there are statements of actuality, like, did he really say that? You know, did Romney right. really make that remark about the 47%? That's not a question of probability. But if you're dealing with the same spokespeople, it's harder to distinguish these. So. Well, so, yeah, and, and, and the press coverage, too. I mean, people, the press, in its effort to be um, what it thinks of as being unbiased, has all sorts of uh, weird hang-ups, right? Where I talked to a guy from, um, from the BBC today who say, well, the kind of orders from on high were that you're supposed to characterize this race as being, as being too close to call. Um, right. Now, this is going to sound like a semantic point, but it's not. Saying something is, could go either way um, is not the same as saying that it's too close to call. Uh, a, a, a football match, I used the term soccer mistakenly in the interview earlier, right? <laughs> but, uh, but a football match that's 1-0 uh, that's in the first half right. is, is, uh, could go either way, but it's not too close to call. One team is right. clearly ahead, clearly a favorite right. to win or at least draw. And it's kind of a similar sure. thing in, when it comes to election coverage. And because the media is so afraid of, of taking sides, they wind up... Uh, uh, you know, kind of ridiculously missing the obvious sometimes. Well, but again, they're like the weathercasters, right? They're not just afraid of taking sides. It's better to have too close to call than this race is over, forget about it. No, and you'll hear in in newsrooms, right, they'll be like, don't be biased for the left or the right, but you're allowed to root for the story, right? Right. What what means you can kind of trump up minor events and make them seem very significant. Um, You know, a lot of time, uh, the true story, especially in the early stage of campaign, is that nothing important 
happen today in politics, right? Go watch a movie or go uh, to the movie or go get a pint with your friends or something, right. right? Nothing important at all happened today and things look exactly the same, right? But it's very hard to have an A1 story in the Times of the Post or the Wall Street Journal uh, based on that lead. Right. The, so let me take this just a, a step further, and I'll, I'll I want to open it up so I'll be getting your questions ready. But, but reading this, one of the things that struck me is, and I can't now remember who it was that you were talking with when you came up with the point. The, the point runs through the book in multiple places, which is that what we sum up under headings like truth or quality or something has multiple meanings to us. It's part of where I was sure. going with mm-hmm. here. So that there's... Um, Accuracy, there's honesty, that is how this is being presented and whether there's an admission about the degree of uncertainty and other factors. And there's value. Is it actually useful to somebody? So it could be economic value in some cases, other kinds of galoshes wearing value. Um, I, I sort of thought this was terrific and it, it opened up multiple dimensions to the question of just was this a good or a bad poll. Yeah, and so these are different definitions that are thought of in, in weather forecasting where um, the weather service and other organizations are trying to determine how valuable a forecast might be. I mean, part of it is that I think if you're working with, with complex data sets, and we can debate about whether election forecasting really is a, a complex data set or not, um, but it's pretty hard uh, in the first place to, <clears throat> to add a lot of value when other smart people are working on the same problem in similar ways. So if you deviate from the idea that I just want to be as accurate as possible, then, um, then you're going to be behind the curve most of the time. Again, it kind of gets toward this thing where I think it's hard to go a little bit of the way toward, uh, toward fudging your analysis and, and not going the whole way. At the right. same time, uh, um, you know, what does truth mean? I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for giving the most honest representation of, uh, of the data as you see it, and that's truthful in some, in some sense or moral in some sense. Um, you know, the book says that objectivity is a, is a complicated uh, definition, right? Um, on the one hand, um, the media's definition of, of journalistic objectivity is clearly quite silly, where it's like, well, we'll have an equal amount of coverage right. on, on both sides, or to say the polls are equal when they're not. It's not really being objective, where objectivity means, means I think, truth in some sense. But I think it also means that none of us has a monopoly on, on what is true. We all have a subjective point of view when you're making decisions and building a, a statistical model or doing an analysis, then, um, then there is judgment required. Not necessarily the kind of snap gut instinct judgment, but mm-hmm. you do have a number of choices. And so one thing that validated, I think, 538 last year was that, um, was that there were a lot of other people who took similar approaches, some a little different, some a little bit less complicated, but they all kind of came to the same basic conclusion, that it was censored, not very sensitive to the assumptions that you could tweak things in different ways and, and it still had Obama ahead. Whether he was a 55% favorite or a 95% favorite, you can, you can debate, but still it wasn't uh, too close to call. Right. And, and underline this, you make the point that being pattern recognizers is built into human nature, but there's no guarantee that that leads you in the right direction. That's right. Because it means people <laughs> see patterns that are wrong all the time. So recognizing patterns in past data is the, is the first step to make a prediction, but it's not tantamount to making a prediction. Um, there are a lot of times when you can have a, a regime or a paradigm change. Uh, for example, the, the models that the uh, rating agencies use to determine how likely it was that credit uh, rated, bond, excuse me, mortgage-backed securities would, would default, um, 
they had millions of data points, but all those data points were taken from the American experience from like 1987 to 2007 when housing prices were always, were always increasing or were steady. Right. So that model wasn't uh, robust to a downturn at all in the housing market. Uh, maybe deliberately so because they, they knew what would happen if, if one occurred and they didn't want to have to acknowledge that to their, their clients necessarily. Um, but, um, but, you know, to think about, uh, to have more kind of macro, meta-level thinking about, um, about good modeling practices, I think there should be kind of mm. more focus on, on these methodology questions, not for abstract ways, right, but in terms of, uh, you know, people, we saw the Reinhardt and Rogoff paper recently, which had uh, an Excel coding error. Right. Uh, paper about Reinhardt and Rogoff, yeah. Yeah, made a lot of fun, uh, people made a lot of fun of, but also there were a lot of assumptions in that paper about how do you measure, uh, uh, you know, how are you weighing different countries together, and, and there wasn't the thing about, well, how, how noisy is this data set? Really, all science tends to look more more pristine in the journal than it is in a laboratory, and that's a that's a mistake, I think. Mm-hmm. Indeed, and one of the things that goes into the best-selling book in the Reinhardt Rogoff example is some of that graphical representation and the smoothing out and the the relegation at best to footnotes, yeah. if at all, of the qualifiers. Yeah, so they'll show like a kind of graph showing how uh, GDP growth declines once you reach a certain threshold, right? But they don't show you the data points that make up right. that graphic where they're all over the place, right? right. Um, and, you know, it explains the signals about, about 3% in a statistical sense. We're looking at the R squared of how much that predicts things. And, uh, and given that you have a data set which isn't terribly robust, there haven't been that many countries, basically um, a few countries in, in Europe after, after the Second World War and Japan recently that ever had a GDP to, uh, debt ratio or, or debt to GDP above 150%, right? right? So it's not very robust at all, and that doesn't really come through in the, in the presentation as That's much. True. And one of the really interesting things in the book, and this is my transition to open it up, is that you're right, it's not abstract, but there are a whole series of domains. And one of the interesting features about the world is there are statistics junkies in a whole bunch of different areas. So weather has its version of this. Yeah, and the yeah. people of this, and there are all kinds of closet weather junkies around. But you know, so does horse racing and baseball, and so do you know, does the world of economics and a whole series of different domains in which there is a an excitement for trying to get the pattern right and to sort of beat it. With that, let me invite some questions for the audience. Remind you, and we'll take this question first from the gentleman with his hand up to get the uh, microphone um, and probably say who you are. Nate, do you worry that your success in the last two elections, now for the next election, the next, the 2016, that you're now going to be part of the system and therefore nobody will bother to vote because you've called it. <laughs> or, on the other hand, you'll aggravate the Republicans so much that they'll all go out and storm the ramparts. Well, I, get I mean, this, I mean so, so first of all, it's not clear what the net effect of, of voters being overconfident is. Does it affect the losing side more by, or the side that's trailing by lowering morale or the winning side by engendering uh, complacency? I'm, I'm not sure. But I guess what I'd say is that if you back up and, and look at election coverage in general, um, then media coverage of elections can influence voter behavior, especially in races where you have uh, more than two candidates. So in the primaries in the U.S. or say in the last general election here, um, the whole Clegg media boom and bust, the Lib Dem kind of boom and bust last year, is partly media generated um, or amplified by 
by the press as voters are trying to decide, is this, uh, is this party viable or not, or will my vote mm-hmm. be wasted? Um, you saw something similar in the Iowa caucuses uh, in the United States in 2012, where you had three very, uh, very conservative candidates, Rick Santorum, Michelle Bachman, and Rick Perry, who were all tied at about 10% in the polls. Mitt Romney uh, had his 20%. So in some ways, voters were indifferent between these three candidates. It was a very inefficient configuration, where if you compile those votes together, they would have won, uh, but any one of them individually would not. But lo and behold, you had a, uh, a CNN poll came out that had a, a very small sample size and had Santorum uh, surging from 10% to 16%. Could have been within the margin of error, right? Could have mm-hmm. been kind of a sample size fluke. But, but, you know, given that the premise usually is that nothing important happened today, I wrote about it and lots of other people wrote about it and talked about how Centaurum was surging in the polls, and lo and behold, soon he did in reality, right? Where people said, well, why would I want to waste my vote for um, Bachman? Here's a cue I need to know I should vote for Centaurum instead. And he wound up winning the Iowa caucus by, by a few dozen, actually, votes. Um, so, you know, I guess I'd say that if you're going to have coverage of, of campaigns and polls, you could be like France, where there's no polling, or some other countries where you can't have polling in the last couple of days. You can kind of argue for that from a, a societal good point of view. I, I'm too much of a free speech guy to, to think it's a good idea. But, uh, but, um, but otherwise, you know, I'd rather have an accurate description of what the polling shows than an inaccurate one. And there are also cases where instead of us saying, oh, this outcome's very certain, over the long run, there are also a lot of cases where we say, well, um, there's less certainty here than, than there appears. In the primaries, as opposed to the general election, um, people overestimate how clear a lead might be um, with a few days to go. For example, Obama over Clinton in the New Hampshire primary in 2008. Those polls are off all the time. So I find myself on different sides of this debate um, at different points in time. And in general, again, not always, but as a general bias, the bias is toward underestimating the amount of uncertainty in the world in press coverage, mm-hmm. where they'll herald a, a debatable result from a paper, for example, or, or, um, or simplify things in a way that really does dumb them down and, and um, is not willing to discuss the, the nuances and the contingent claims that are being debated. Good. All right, we had a question in the far back. Gentleman at the tie. Yeah. Hi, Nate. I'm uh, Bob Ward. I work at the Climate Change Institute here at LSE, and I really wanted to compliment you on the chapter on climate change in, the, in your book, which is an outstanding example of clear description of how um, information can be either deliberately or unwittingly used to mislead. But I was wondering about um, your experience of, of the media and its willingness and ability to cope with information appropriately. And do you think that um, you could do your job, say, at the Wall Street Journal, you know, taking into account the politics? Or do you think that the New York Times is partic- something special about the New York Times that means that you can do your job there? Um, so, you know, on the times I work in the, in the, on the newsroom side, and I'm not sure if this is as true about uh, newspapers over here, but um, in the U.S. you have a very clear division between the newsroom side and the editorial page of the Times. So Jill Abramson does not edit the editorial page of the Times. People don't necessarily know that. Um, and I think the journal um, runs a, a terrific newsroom, and their reporting is often very accurate. I think they... Uh, they aren't good, I, you know, I think some of the stuff that appears in the editorial page is not necessarily good for, for that paper's brand. It's one of the few peop- papers that people actually on both sides of the political aisle read. I think they might be risking that by some of the stances they take. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, in general, I feel, um, I feel relatively free to express myself 
um, at the times, and I have editors who trust me. Uh, you do you do self censor a little bit more when you're not um, on your own, um, and you are aware. Um, whereas I think here the kind of standard is that it's just acknowledged that papers <clears throat> have a partisan point of view and try and hopefully be fair, or maybe not, um, relative to that kind of prior set of assumptions. Um, in the U.S., people are always uh, terrified of appearing to be um, biased and partisan, even though many of the media outlets are. Um, and so, you know, so the question of um, asking yourself, am I being biased, is always something that you have to think about as a New York Times reporter. And I think it's not a bad question to ask. To ask yourself, um, does my rooting interests in this race uh, affect the way I'm, I'm making these decisions? Um, one one uh, protection I have against that is we design the models um, way, way before any of the polling becomes relevant. So we don't, and we don't change them once the election occurs. So we're not doing a lot of ad hoc, ad hocery. But I think it's okay to ask yourself, um, am I being biased, right? It's very mm -hmm. hard to be objective at the same time you shouldn't jump to lazy conclusions that, oh, well, um, I'll have to give equal time to both sides. Therefore, that proves that I'm not being biased at all. Um, to acknowledge that, um, that no one has a monopoly on, on the truth is not the same thing as to say that, oh, it's always split down the middle. Say a couple more words, if you would, Nate, about the role of models in, in your work <coughs> and setting up the model that you designed in advance in relation to the individual cases. So the, so the model that I built is, uh, is uh, in Stata. It used to be in Microsoft Excel, which you guys, especially with this recent Reinhardt and Rogoff example, should, <laughs> should not avoid. use for complex <laughs> modeling. Um, but it's something that um, the idea is that it started as being quite simple, where there were sites like Real Clear Politics that uh, would take a, a polling average, but um, but would not make any effort to weight the polls, and would frankly be somewhat um, arbitrary about which polls they would include or not. Um, so my idea instead was to uh, have a model that included all polls, but which um, discriminated. Uh, by, by uh, weighing polls that were more accurate historically more going forward. Um, and over time, that kind of built out into a more complex system where you're looking at the relationships between different states. Um, this year, we introduced an economic component um, to the model. So very as much as I say, well, polls are highly accurate in October and so forth. They're not very accurate in, in May or, or June of an election year. Uh, Michael Dukakis would have been president if people voted in, in June 1988, and, and he wasn't. Um, and so um, having some prior base of economic conditions that you're weighing against. So it builds out over time. Um, but at the same time, like I said, uh, you know, if you had a simple model like Real Clear Politics did, you would still have gotten <clears throat> 48 or 49 of the 50 states right. So when you add complexity to a system, uh, it usually produces improvement only around, only around the margin, and just kind of getting the basic things right is, was, still, um, was still a lot better than the coverage you get in the average uh, news media account. All right. Great. Let's take a question from upstairs. There's somebody in a sort of um, orangey shirt in the front row. Hi. Um, you said at the beginning that you don't just average polls, you effectively weight them by some reliability judgment. Can you say a bit more about how you arrive at the reliability factors and how you adjust them and how often you adjust them and what happens to new data sources just in general? Yeah, so, uh, so there are a couple things. Number one is that uh, although there is some consistency in how accurate a poll is from, from one election cycle to the next, um, it's still a fairly small sample size where you can have, if you have a margin of error based on sampling error of a couple of points, plus or minus, then you're going to get some results wrong through, through chance alone. So um, it's really only when we have a pollster with a long track record of being good 
are not as good that we weight that all that heavily. Um, the other thing is that there are some, uh, some uh, qualitative factors that we found predict polling accuracy. So one is whether or not you include cell phones in your poll. Uh, um, about a third of Americans right now don't have um, landlines at all. Um, another good chunk have landlines but, but don't use them. They assume it's a spam call only. So some quick and dirty pollsters won't include uh, cell phones in their polls and they don't do very well. Likewise, we found that polls that abide by industry standards, their industry groups in the U.S. that look at is a pollster disclosing things well and being professional. Um, and so we use membership in one of those organizations as a proxy for overall methodological quality. And so those things have influence um, along, with, along with how accurate a pollster's been. Um, and again, the less data we have on how well they've done historically, the more we default to these prior assumptions based on, on the poll quality instead of looking at their, at their results. So, but we don't change that once the, year, uh, once the year goes along. I think some people on the right were saying, well, he's you know, arbitrarily deciding how much to weight every poll. It's like, no, you know, you're trying to have a, a system that acknowledges that, um, that we don't want to be purely results driven when you have a small sample size. And we can make some basic judgments that if you're following professional standards and trying to actually reach everyone who has a cell phone, then that's probably better. But, but there's, not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of ad hoc stuff beyond that. Once you make your decisions, then, um, then you apply those principles consistently. Okay, good. Someone in a black and white striped sweater jersey, straight back. Uh, we know that the Republicans got a lot of things wrong, but what did they do wrong in terms of the data they used and the data they analyzed? Um, so in, uh, one piece of context is that in, in 2000, um, and to a lesser extent in 2004, the GOP really had the lead in using data mining to target individual voters in terms of how much effort to put in to a certain advertising market or what type of literature to send to a voter. Um, Carl Rowe, whatever else you think of him, was, was good at that kind of stuff. Um, in 2008, John McCain didn't have, we had lots of money, but not as much as Barack Obama had, and they decided to um, try and win the campaign on a national level, not do very much voter outreach, voter targeting. Um, he was in a fairly desperate position, so maybe that was the best choice he had. But, but Romney, um, unfortunately for him, perpetuated that mistake, where they made a lot of noise about um, doing more voter targeting, and, and, but didn't really have highly functional systems. Um, in fact, their systems broke, in essence, on, on election day. Their way to monitor turnout at the polls on election day um, had a failure, and they, and they weren't operative on the election day itself. Um, I think part of this is that, uh, is that if you look at donations from, uh, from Silicon Valley, whereas the Obama campaign can recruit people from, from Google uh, or, or, um, or Facebook or whatever else, about 90% of those donations went to Obama instead of, of Romney. Um, I think the fact that Republicans have become so conservative <clears throat> on social policy, you have the industry concentrated in, in California, which is very multicultural and very tolerant in a lot of ways. Ron Paul got plenty of money, the libertarian candidate, from people in, at those corporations, but, but not Mitt Romney. So, um, so attracting uh, young talent, I think, is, is part of, of the issue here. But also, um, Romney, despite being a very good business person, um, somehow, I think, neglected this part of his campaign. Was the question partly what the polls that predicted Romney's victory did wrong in a technical way? Like using landlines only, that kind of thing? Well, know. look, uh, uh, there are a lot of assumptions that a pollster can make to, um, to get a particular result, right? right. Um, and we found historically that when, <clears throat> when campaigns release polls to the public, they're biased by an average 
of six percentage points. That's huge. It's like way more than even the worst, even the Zogbies, even the terrible polls of the world don't have a six-point bias on average. Um, so campaigns will find ways to, I mean, basically it's the same problem you have in a lot of uh, uh, kind of social science contexts where people run an experiment 50 times in 50 different ways and trial number 48 produces a brilliant result and that's the one you report right. to the journal. All right? That's very bad science but, but, uh, but candidates can do the same thing. You're like, well, if we make this assumption about likely voters and, and include this third party candidate but not that one and use only our Tuesday sample but not our Wednesday sample, then we're, we're only down one in Ohio, right? Let's report that to some terrible reporter at Politico and, and he'll think he has a scoop, right? And campaigns, I think, operate that way and it's hard to be in that mind frame and then, and then bear down to reality, I think, I think later on. And this is the link between um, having non-replicable data in science and, and the reason why you lo- use a aggregation of polls. Yeah, so it's, you know, and we're not just use, so one step I left out of that relatively simple approach is the other thing we do is, is, uh, is de-bias polls because there are some polls that consistently lean in one direction or another. So one of the, one of the ways to generate fake news during a campaign is that, say, a a Republican-leaning poll like Rasmussen comes out with a poll saying, oh, Romney's up two in Florida. Then a Democratic-leaning poll says, no, Obama's up three instead, right? And the media will say, oh, there's been a huge shift toward Obama just overnight in Florida, you know? And then associate with some silly gaffe that, that Romney made, but really it's just different polls with a predictable bias weighing, in the, and they kind of say the same thing once you, once you strip that out. All right. We'll go to the gentleman in the green up, the, up there. Yeah. Hi. Um, so lately there's been a lot of uh, also academic papers that use uh, Twitter or Google searches to try to predict the labor market uh, developments or stock market developments. Uh, what do you think? Uh, is, it, is there potential in big data or is it just a hype and data mining where people just have no theory and they just pick stuff and try around until things work out? Well, there, there's definitely a lot of hype. Um, I've traveled a lot so I get to read a lot of magazines and in the Harvard Business Review, every other ad is about big data, right? And I worry when something becomes fashionable more quickly than the kind of skill set necessarily catches up with it. But with respect to using social media metrics in particular, um, you know, there are some cases where it's gotten people in trouble. So Google, for instance, has a, has a system in the United States called Google Flu Trends, where it uses different search terms like, you know, um, flu symptoms, for example, um, quote unquote, to predict the level of flu or kind of a real-time predict, real cast the level of flu in a given area. Um, and this year, it significantly overestimated the flu. It's not the worst mistake in the history of prediction. It's not the credit rating agencies or something, but they did overpredict the spread of flu um, by, by a fair amount. And part of the issue is that if, they, if you build a data set based on what people look for, say, from, from 2005 to, to 2009, well, the way people have used um, Google and other media products has changed a lot since that time. So it may have been miscalibrated. So the question is, until you, uh, until you observe something work under different conditions, then it's probably right to be, to be somewhat skeptical of it. I mean, the other thing, too, is that the polls are, are actually pretty good in general elections in the U.S., to qualify that a bit. So there's not necessarily a lot of need to get overly fancy with other types of, of tools. Um, you know, I think it's probably more useful in cases like uh, for consumer-facing, like retail products, and so forth. I know in the motion picture industry now, for example, um, where you have kind of much more rapid, not one case every four years, but you have a movie coming out every week, they've noticed that uh, Twitter sentiment on the Friday when a film is released will tend to predict box office sales for the rest 
of the weekend. And it will affect them as well. Where it used to be if you had a crappy movie that you marketed pretty well, you could count on at least a full weekend of good box office for it. But now it's like people will know it stinks after, after just a day in the theater or so. So this <laughs> rapid transmission of information um, uh, changes things. Okay, great. Can we get the man in the center in the gray sweatshirt? Thank you. Uh, speaking of uh, terrible polls, uh, do you feel that um, that maybe that the rate of bad polls, polls that are bad methodologically is increasing? And maybe uh, if it is, what are the reasons for that? Maybe lower barriers to entry and other associated reasons. So yeah, I mean, doing polling the, the right way is, is pretty expensive, um, where it might cost uh, you know, 10 or 20,000 pounds to do a proper poll. I like that automatic translation. Did. I was impressed. Um, uh, so you know, so when you have constrained media budgets, and that can affect things quite a bit. Um, and for a while, the the automated polls, the law in the U.S. is that you can't use an automated dialing script, which saves a lot of money. Um, but you can't use it to call cell phones. Um, so back when you know 90% of calls were made on on landlines, that might have been just fine. Right, but now that a decreasing and ever decreasing share are those polls are increasingly uh, showing a decline in quality. There is also some evidence that they that they cheat. Um, that when you only have the bad polls out there, they're often quite inaccurate. But the minute a good poll comes along, they all calibrate relative to that. So it's not just the campaigns that tweak their assumptions. Like, well, you know, this uh, this highly scientific poll says uh, says you know Michelle Bachman's up up three points. So let me change my assumptions so I uh, I get the same. Results. So um, the good news, though, is that uh, is that internet-based polling did fairly well in the U.S. in 2012. Where now um, internet penetration is, is higher now than landline penetration, which is falling. So Google does some internet-based polls, and uh, and YouGov, other companies do. Um, although I will say, in some ways, it's a miracle uh, that uh, we haven't had a big disaster because mm-hmm. we only have only about 10% of people now respond even to the most thorough polls in the United States. So if you respond to a poll, you're pretty weird. There's kind of something <laughs> wrong with you if, you if you're taking 15 minutes out of your busy life to answer a poll, right? Uh, so the fact that you, somehow this does come together in the end is, is, has been fortunate for me, but you, know, you could have a, a big disaster sooner or later. Okay, let's go back here next to the door. My question is basically about sample size. One of our prominent pollsters here who has no shortage of money to carry out polls is Lord Michael Ashcroft. And he wrote a detailed piece in the op-ed page of the FT on Saturday in which he carried out a poll in about, I think, 200-plus target or marginal constituencies in the UK with actually what appeared to be on the surface a big sample of 16,000-plus. I just wonder whether you actually think... I mean, he then pointed out that, you know, uh, this showed a different result from actually a national poll. Uh, I was involved with newspaper by-election polls some years ago, and we used to think, say, basically, because we were caught out once or twice, that basically you needed a sample size of a minimum of 1,200 and a constituency of 60,000. I just wonder what, what your comment is on, on a target poll like that and that sample size. Well, so certainly one, one advantage that, uh, that I have is that I'm compiling a bunch of different polls together, and so you, you build a de facto larger sample size. And I don't think there's any, there's any bright line... Exactly. In general, uh, the closer the race, the uh, the more of a sample size that you would that you would want potentially. Um, but the other thing, if you have a bad methodology, um, so these 
Zogby internet polls, which unlike the Google or the YouGov polls, are, are, are pretty unscientific and, and terrible. Um, they would often have sample sizes of, of you know, tens of thousands of people, and they were still <laughs> the most inaccurate polls in the business. If you have a bad method and you're kind of aiming in, in a biased target, then the sample size won't help you very much at all. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of a cost-benefit question. Um, you do encounter diminishing returns where that sampling error uh, 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 converges towards zero as you add more and more data points. But the non-sampling error that people don't want to talk about as much, that you have a self-selecting sample, that there's changes from the time you take the poll to what will happen uh, two or three weeks from then, um, you know, that part doesn't, doesn't matter how long a sample size you take, you can't, you can't remove those types of mistakes unless you're using a, a sound methodology and, and not giving voters any time to, to change their minds. All right, so can we come down here in the front? Going back to the last question, does all this mean we can or can't expect a 538 polling company? Or you're sort of entering their commercial polling industry at any point? Yeah, I think, I think polling is kind of a miserable business, so I don't know. I, well, I, um, there's always some guy like <laughs> Nate after you. <laughs> no, I, I don't really have an interest in, in conducting polls myself, at least not in a public way. I've done um, one or two consulting projects for non-political clients that involved polling. Um, but, you know, I mean, there are plenty of, of polls out there. Um, you know, one Gallup, which was one of the companies that did not have a very good year in the United States last year, kind of made this argument that, well, uh, well, you have, what happens if you have um, all the aggregators, right? They're all feeding mm -hmm. off our data. And, and what happens if we go away? And although I think Gallup was kind of making some excuses for having a really buggy model, um, that, that is a valid concern, right, where um, we're just taking everyone else's content, then, uh, and I think we are adding a lot of value, unlike, uh, you know, some other aggregators and so forth, but, um, but still, yeah, uh, you know, so we're relying on publicly available information, and one of the themes, um, one of the sub-themes of 538 is that, you know, publicly available data often beats private information, which is obtained at a cost, right? In the U.S., the cost is usually that you're getting that information from a campaign for a reason, because they want to spin you or manipulate the media coverage, and that cost usually outweighs the fact that they might have access to more information. Um, having more information, but, uh, but looking at it more biasedly, is usually a net negative when you weigh those two things together. Okay. Good. Going farther back, a gentleman in the green with an orange color. Well, actually, I have uh, two questions. Um, the first one is, how partisan do you consider yourself? And um, would you consider working for, uh, like, a right-wing pollster, for instance? So, for instance, if Rasmussen called you and said, okay, we'd like you to come in and clean up our shop, would you, would you do it? That's the first question. And then the second question is, um, you know, people who, you know, delve into lots of statistical data and so on, um, you know, there, there are limits to rationality, okay? I believe, of course, there's objective truth, but when it comes to convincing somebody um, about what, is, what you know to be right, how have you sort of changed over the years um, in, you know, relying sort of maybe less on the data and maybe more on making uh, a, a compelling argument? Because, I, I mean, I saw you on lots of talk shows and so on, and... I could tell many times, I, obviously you knew what you were talking about, but I mean, it was like there was a brick wall there that was impossible to get through. How yeah. have you learned to you know, make your uh, arguments more compellingly? Uh, so, so 
I mean, on the first question, I don't know. Uh, I didn't vote in the last two, in the 2012 or in the 2010 midterms. Um, my politics on an American scale are, are, are um, fairly center-left. I'm not sure how that would port over here. Maybe, maybe center-right. I'm not sure. Um, there's enough of translation there. Um, um, but, you know, I mean, I, I definitely have uh, uh, strong political views as compared to the average person. I think I have relatively weak partisan spirit as compared to the average person involved in politics, from which everything is seen in a partisan lens. Um, but, you know, people have all types of, of incentives, and they have careerist incentives and financial incentives. Uh, you know, one perverse incentive I had during the Republican primaries is that um, you had reached the stage where Romney was kind of competing against the seven dwarves or whatever, right? And, um, you know, I really wanted that to be over because I needed time to, to put the last provision on my book, right? And the sooner, the t- the sooner that, uh, that Romney wrapped it up, the more time I'd have to, to make the book uh, a little bit better, right? So you have all types of perverse incentives, and I think it's useful to think about them, and that's why um, the more you can apply a consistent set of rules, the better. But, but no one has a monopoly on, on, uh, on objectivity. Um, you know, as for whether I would work for for Rasmussen or something, you know, I, again, I, I, uh, the more I've done this, one of the changes that has occurred is that I have less and less desire to become um, any type of, of player um, in the political system, right, where, uh, where I don't like the people particularly much, right, uh, it doesn't pay all that well, and it kind of would compromise, and I think that you kind of um, taint yourself by, by being on the inside and having all this useless information that people are pushing on you necessarily. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, how have things changed? I think, uh, <clears throat> for me, myself, personally, I, uh, look, a lot of the mistakes that I describe um, in the book, things like overfitting a model, for instance, are things that I've, I've done myself, or at least used to do more commonly myself. Part of it is I, I got my start working in, in baseball data. Um, and baseball data is, is more rich and robust than almost any other real-world data set. So it's good for getting your training wheels in a lot of ways. It also means that you don't have to worry about problems of data quality uh, that you might face in a lot of other, other contexts. So I, I've tried to become uh, more careful about saying things like, well, here's what, the, uh, here's what the objective truth is, and I'm being objective and they're not so there, right? Um, at the same time, it definitely is hard when you're trying to describe things to, to a mainstream audience, especially when you're trying to frame things in terms of probability. So there probably was some shift during the campaign where I got tired of trying to say that oh, well, um, Obama's a 70% favorite. That means Romney's going to win three out of ten times. That's a lot, right? I try and explain that, and you can make sports analogies, and it works okay up to a point. But at some point, I realized that, like, I'm going to own this Obama prediction. Um, even if I say it's a probabilistic forecast, I'm going to uh, uh, get a lot of credit if Obama wins, more than I deserve, and a lot of blame if Romney uh, wins, arguably more than I deserve, right? And so, so lean into that outcome, at some point, right, um, and say, well, I'm not going to try and um, fight against the people who mistake it for being certain, but the people who say it's 50-50, too close to call, that's a good, that's a good target, right? Uh, that's a much easier argument to make in some ways and makes for better television. So in terms of nothing changes about the model, it's the same numbers, but, but certainly the way you present things to, to the public, I'm aware of the, of the politics of, of media, I suppose. Okay, let's go upstairs. There's a woman in the second row. Hi there. Um, you speak a lot about truth and accuracy and making sure methodologies and so on are robust. So I want to know what your take is on Wikipedia, a resource that anyone can edit. You know, it's just someone with their opinion. Do you think it's reliable? Do you think it's a good resource? Um, so, you know, one 
one general theme is that there, uh, there is often wisdom in crowds and that, uh, and that kind of markets in general uh, um, are better than almost any individual predictor. It's difficult to beat crowd wisdom. At the same time, uh, at the same time you have to be worried about, about herding. So I talked about the example before where, um, where some of the bad pollsters are really calibrating off the good pollsters. If the good pollsters lead you astray, you run into trouble. In financial markets, if, if highly credible institutions like the rating agencies who used to be credible in the United States um, say something is secure and people might gravitate toward that and kind of have blinders on potentially. So I think it's kind of why you have a system where you have uh, where you're pretty accurate most of the time but then you have the occasional catastrophic failure and kind of fat tails and nonlinear relationships are all characteristics of, of complex behavior where people react to one another. Um, so similarly in, in, in Wikipedia it might be high accurate most of the time but you have the occasional egregious mistake. Um, if you're working on a book or a paper or something, then, um, then it's not that hard to use it, though, where, uh, where in theory everything should be cited. And so, um, and so you trace things back to uh, the original source and see whether it checks out. So it's a good way to aggregate different information together. But I mean, you know, uh, that's probably why the book has something like a thousand footnotes <laughs> or something as well, right? Because it is easy to make uh, mistakes when you're synthesizing people's complex research. So, um, so to show people, well, here's how I got this idea from. And there's some ideas we're going to get wrong. People can, can trace that back and see, and see where the step is coming from, right? And if I mischaracterize something, they can, uh, they can see where I made the mistake, at least. Um, and so as long as things are, are sourced within Wikipedia, I think um, it has a lot of potential to kind of efficiently give you a good, quick take on things. If you want more depth, obviously, then, then kind of check the original sources. OK, great. Can we go uh, to the man of the blue hat in the middle here? Hi, uh, my name is Nick. As a recent convert to baseball, I'd like to elaborate <laughs> a little bit on the development of sabermetrics and how that could be used in other areas. So, uh, back when Michael Lewis wrote Moneyball um, in 2002, it was kind of right when I was breaking into writing about baseball a lot, and you really did have uh, very much a kind of nerds versus jocks mentality in baseball because the, the jocks were concerned that their jobs would be taken by these, these geeks with degrees from MIT. Well, so, actually, how could you bat? Well, sure, right? <laughs> uh, um, but, but since then, baseball, so there are a couple things going on in baseball that um, made it amenable, though, to a very quick revolution. Number one is that you do have, you do have a relatively objective way to measure success by, by wins and losses and to measure the kind of marginal revenue product in economic terms of each player. Very hard to do that in a lot of different companies. Um, it's a very competitive industry. It's also a small industry, so you had only 30 firms. So, um, so that's why you could have some kind of cultural constraints. But once teams like um, the Red Sox and the Oakland A's began to have success, um, not being purely stats-based, but by, by adding that as a major ingredient, by having people who were in charge of the teams who were conversant in that language, they, um, it became more, not a luxury anymore, but a necessity, where almost every major league team now uh, um, not just employs a stat head who they lock into a closet, but um, it has, it's throughout the organization's DNA, really. And they're much more effective um, and kind of rational. Uh, All the way down to recruiting. and everything. Yeah, yeah. And part of that, by the way, is, is taking your scouts who might look at subjective factors and evaluating their, their performance in an objective way. So, like, this guy really is... Um, really good at picking up these extra subjective factors, right? We can measure that. Um, and this guy, and this guy is not. Um, this guy is lazy, but this guy is great. So you can you can do a little bit more of that. Um, in other sports, I mean, it's come a long way in in basketball, certainly in the United States. Um, um, uh, somewhat less so in American football, but uh, uh, 
there's been progress there as well. I, mean, I think, I think uh, uh, European football, uh, what you guys would consider regular football, is, is maybe not the most progressive when it comes to data analysis, in part because it's harder when you have um, 11 players moving in a fluid way on a team to measure the contribution of, of any one player. Um, you've also had fewer statistics tracked historically. I know that's changing a bit. Um, but still, the question is, uh, where are, are you relative to where you could be? So maybe in baseball, you can explain 95% in theory by using statistics. And we probably are explaining 90% of that 95% right now. So you're very close to the kind of wall, right? In soccer, maybe it's only 50%, but we're only explaining 10% of it right now. So there might be a lot of room to grow, potentially. And have you tried out cricket? I've not tried out. Some guy from, uh, from an Indian cricket franchise once claimed to me this was going to be the next big money ball would be for Indian cricket teams. But yeah, cricket would be... So sports that are, are, uh, are orderly and linear, right, where people kind of take their turns are, are more amenable to analysis. You know, tennis is another good one where it's a very simple sport to model potentially. It always confuses me because half the statistics and the applause that matches have nothing to do with who's winning. Yeah. And I, it's very hard to get at that. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, so the paradigm is, uh, I think some people mistake statistics for meaning like factoids, right? Like, uh, when it really it means, you know, it's, the science of statistics is to understand what, uh, you know, better decision-making ultimately. And the question is, what actually drives teams to win baseball games and or to, to make money in the long term? Yeah, the woman in the teal sweater in the back. Hello, my name is Sarah. Um, you made a very interesting point at the start about how information is often misrepresented in the media um, to kind of sell newspapers, I guess. Um, what do you think will come first? Uh, the media starting to use data properly and being transparent in what results actually mean? Or is it uh, educating the masses and understanding how to, um, well, understand data? Um, so, you know, I tend not to think of of the news media as a fast-moving industry in particular. So I think, I think educating the consumer is probably where more of my focus would be. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think there'll be some improvements around, around the margin. But look, the same pundits who, who got things totally wrong in 2012, and I know that 2012 is a small sample, but there have been systematic studies of pundits on the McLaughlin group and, and, and so on and so forth, academic studies as well, where they, they basically have no skill. Right, uh, where they get you know, McLaughlin to get half their predictions right almost exactly over the long run. So the same as flipping a coin. Um, so I think the first step is probably discrediting those people, right, and leaving a little bit more space for, for everyone else. Um, look, and you know, probably there are bad ways to statistical analysis as well. I'm sure I'm going to get um, a number of things wrong, but uh, but yeah, I mean you know part of it is kind of holding the media more accountable. And elections are unique in that, uh, not unique, but rare in that you really do have a way to test the accuracy of the characterizations that they're giving you, right? Um, so would they fire a baseball player who struck out all the time faster than they fire these pundits? I, oh, sure, yeah. I mean, um, and part of that makes you get much more rapid feedback. We have one election every four years. And again, you know, things like, uh, I mean, now I guess we can kind of come to a retrospective judgment on, on who accurately portrayed the risks in the Iraq war or something, but, but a lot of things, it's really difficult. You know, people are making claims about the, the budget debate. I mean, it's very difficult to set up uh, controlled experiments when it comes to macroeconomic policy, right? right. Almost impossible to really, to really check those. And maybe you can make kind of predictions of individual events and see how well those track over time. Um, but, you know, and this is also a problem in academia, where some academics resist the idea of, they say, well, if you're actually making, making forecasts, it's kind of a, a distraction, kind of a carnival game. We're interested 
in theory. Well, a theory by, uh, is more scientific if it actually is verifiable and, and predicts behavior going forward. And so you can live in theory land, but if it's not, if it's not actually providing some accuracy when, when new data is, is unfurled to you and knowing that um, fitting and past models have said is not all the same thing as, as actually predicting the future, understanding the systems. There are a lot of false positives and false negatives, a lot of correlations that are mistaken for, for causation. So, um, so predictions really key, and the fact that uh, that in the news media the few predictions we can verify seem to go so badly suggests that <laughs> that you know that's kind of the tip of the iceberg where a lot of the coverage is is really kind of quite poor. Okay, great. Let's go upstairs. The man with blonde hair, about the third or fourth row. All right. Yeah. Uh, thank you. In some elections, it's not just been one or two polls that have had the wrong result, but uh, in fact, uh, nearly all the uh, polls have been biased. I think of 1992 here in the UK, yeah. where nearly all the polls predicted a significant majority for Neil Kinnock's Labour Party, whereas on the election day itself, John Major came in with an outright majority for the Conservatives. If you'd been operational in 1992 and giving advice, could you have avoided the polling companies getting this so badly wrong? Well, I, I don't know we could have avoided it, but what we could have done is understand that the error between polls, as you say, is, is correlated. Um, so, you know, so we had a model in election day had Romney with only a 9 or 10% chance of winning. Um, there were some other models that treat all the polls as being independent and unbiased that had them with a 1% chance of winning instead, right? Um, so I guess you can't critique them based on... 2012, but we know it is important to understand that um, that the advantage of taking more and more data and increasing your sample size, the advantage diminishes if they all miss in the same direction as they often do, as they did in New Hampshire in 2008 in the United States. And also, by the way, if you miss um, in one direction in Ohio, you'll probably miss in the same direction in Pennsylvania as well. So, um, so that's the frustrating part. I mean, now and then there are elections where what I would hope in 1992 um, is that. Um, is that we said, well, well, Tories might survive a little bit better than is commonly understood. The uncertainty is higher than it's being let on, right? It's hard to get too much credit for that mm-hmm. in practice. You say, well, the CW is that there's a 10% chance of this occurring, and I say there's a 20% chance instead, right? Um, it's, that kind of puts you between a vice <laughs> a little bit, where, where the more probable outcome is still going to happen most of the time, right? And, um, and so what happens if this improbable thing does happen, you say, is slightly less unlikely? I'm not sure, but, but that's why we are trying to... I spend more time really kind of thinking in ways to measure the uncertainty and measure the error than in kind of the point prediction, really. It's a trickier problem in a lot of ways. It's kind of how predictable is it, how wrong you might be. Okay. Let me go upstairs in the center again. There's somebody all the way back. Wait, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> the guy in the very back. Last row. Um, I'd like to ask you a bit about British election polling. Um, at the moment, there's a bit of a narrative saying that although Labour is ahead in lots of polls, that they're not really ahead because on other ratings like uh, leadership or trust in the economy, they're not as far ahead as they should be or are behind. So what do you think of the idea of using stuff other than party identification as a proxy for party identification and as a predictor for how results might uh, change closer to an election time? So, you know, so one thing I've found to be true is that using the... The top-line result in the poll is, is by far the most useful data point you get, at least in most cases, where, um, where you know, so some commentators would say, well, Obama's ahead in, in this state, but voters prefer Romney on the economy, and since the economy is the most important issue, therefore that means that Romney is really ahead. Um, well, the problem is the economy is certainly 
very, very important, but that's already baked into the way voters are asking the overall questions. They might say, yeah, I prefer Romney a little bit in the economy, but I like Obama's social policy better and his experience, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's very presumptuous to say that, oh, I know how to weigh these factors better than the voters do. And that's a lot of what I think people are kind of playing around with, with noise in the data. I mean, the reason why, um, why if you're a Tory right now, you shouldn't be despondent because you have two years to go until the election. Um, consider what happened in, in 2010 when Democrats had a, a terrible year. They lost 63 seats um, in Congress and Obama came back to win a relatively solid victory in 2012. Um, so the literature across most Western countries suggests the economy is very important, but also that voters have relatively short time horizons now. Um, and so if you have uh, 3% GDP growth heading into 2015, signs of a, of a real recovery, then, um, then uh, the Tories will most likely be able to spin that. Um, and likewise, you could have things become a lot worse, obviously, as well, if, if Europe blows up potentially, too. But it's very, very early to be making a prognostication. What, what are the odds of that? Oh, Sorry. I don't want to, yeah. <laughs> I'm cheating. Can we come down to the second row here in the center? Thank you. Um, given that it seems that human beings are pretty much hardwired to be terrible at probability and prediction, can you talk more about the key elements of the art of prediction? Um, so in the book, there are kind of three things that I, uh, that I sum up with, and um, the three most important points. Number one is, uh, is think probabilistically, and kind of a point I've emphasized repeatedly today. Um, um, it's hard to train your intuitive sense to do this. I did it by playing, by playing poker myself, where in poker you understand if you have a 90% chance of winning uh, and your opponent needs one of four cards to make a, a, a straight, he will make that straight occasionally. You play thousands and thousands of hands and you experience all levels on the probability curve in a relatively objective way over the long run. Um, you know, the second thing is, as I talked about before, is, is knowing what your biases are and kind of how your subjective point of view and how your incentives distort your view of the problem. And the third one is, uh, is what I call try and error. So one thing about the Bayesian method um, is that you have a prior set of beliefs. You, you test it on some new data or get some new data. You revise those beliefs. You have a posterior now, but that's not the end point. You then use that new set of beliefs to test again. It's a lifelong process. And so to be more, more process-oriented and less results-oriented, I think, is key. Um, now, I will acknowledge that these are very kind of general and, and vague points. Um, one general thing about, about looking toward complex systems is that, um, is that the broader you focus, the vaguer you sometimes have to get. So in the book, there's much more specific advice about what you would do in baseball or economics or weather forecasting and so forth. Um, but the, the universals, I think, to the extent there are any, more have to do with a change of, of mindset and a change of attitude and have to do with a lot with, uh, with understanding uncertainty <laughs> and humility and understanding that... Uh, the more you have time, you have time. You have to refine your model and make marginal improvements. That often ends up to being more productive at the end. Um, there is some research saying that. So Phil Tetlock is a guy who wrote a book called Expert Political Judgment, and he was a guy who did a 20-year survey of experts in economics, political science, uh, and other disciplines, and, and looked at characteristics of people who made better predictions over the long run. And he found people who he called um, foxes, so people who have a lot of little ideas who are multidisciplinary. Um, do better than people who are going all in. Hedgehogs, he called them, on, on one big theory. So there's some evidence about, uh, about what makes you better. But again, it's never any miracles. Those foxes were still fairly bad at predicting, just not quite as terrible as, as the hedgehogs were. Okay, great. 
from the second row. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, having looked at baseball statistics and now polling, what's next? What's, what's the kind of next area that you think could benefit from kind of this, this critical analysis? Uh, so I, I've, I've tried to think about that, I guess. And, uh, you know, one area I've become somewhat interested in is, is education, um, where there's a fair amount of data in education. Not all of it's very good. Uh, we aren't clear on what the objectives are and what the measurements are necessarily. So it's a very thorny problem where you have a lot of potential to get things right and also a lot of potential to get things wrong. It's not always the case that some data is better than none. In theory, it should be, but if people are misapplying that data to make faulty judgments um, and using it in specious ways, it can get you in trouble. Um, You're thinking of things like trying to predict how well students will do in university based on the kind of data that are there at admissions. Sure. I mean, there are a lot of things, everywhere from, from elementary schools to universities, um, you know, rankings of, of universities and colleges. Uh, we have the U.S. Right. News rankings right. in the U.S., and you see more and more schools who are, who are changing major decisions they're making about admissions uh, in ways that are just designed to manipulate those rankings and not actually to, to admit a better or more diverse or whatever else uh, body of students. And that's very, that's very disturbing. When the behavior is catered around the statistic, then um, you know, it's a problem in economics as well, where people uh, start to move to maximize one variable, then it kind of undermines the assumptions of the model, right? And it no longer is a valid basis for measurement a lot of the time. Um, we have this problem with the economics department. They ought to maximize articles in the American Economic Review yeah. and then maximize the salary that we pay them to publish the articles <laughs> in the American Economics Review. Anyway, sorry about that. Um, so we've got somebody in the very, almost the back, blonde hair. Um, yes, you keep your hand up saying so see you. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, hi. I just have a question about um, your opinion about how people view probability. I think at the start you showed this great graph of the USA. We had the different colours of varying from light blue to dark blue and light red, well, pink to red. And whether people understand the probability when you say 51% of a state or whether they just see the colour blue. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, there are a whole experiments that are done in behavioral economics kind of seeing where the different biases are and, and, and there are several. Number one is that people have trouble distinguishing a merely unlikely probability from an extremely unlikely probability. So a one in one million chance of the plane crashing from a one in 100 chance. By the way, statisticians have that problem as well sometimes where if you don't have a very robust data set then saying whether probability really is one in 100 or one in one million is often, often very tricky. Um, people have trouble uh, around 50% sometimes, where you know, 52% to 48% will be seen as very definitive because you're stepping out and venturing a prediction. Remember what, what the Weather Service does to tilt it in one direction or another. So yeah, there are various uh, inflection points where people, have, where people have difficulty. That's good. Let's go over to uh, the woman in blue eyeglasses. Yes. I was wondering about the link between statistical predictions and betting. And I just wanted to ask how likely a certain event has to be for you to be willing to put money on it. <laughs> See, would, so you I, bet, I, would you bet on something if it was 51% likely, if it was 70% likely, if it was 99.5% likely? Uh, so, uh, I mean, there are, there are ways to actually address this. 
question and their mathematical formulas where, um, and the gambler has to be concerned not just about um, the house will take a cut on most bets and also the risk of, of ruin. If you, uh, if you make a $1,000 bet uh, and then lose one, you're back to zero. But if you lose the bet first, then you're ruined. You can't make the next bet. Um, so, you know, I think most sports gamblers are, are, would want to be about 53% certain before they would make a wager. And even the best ones don't usually do better than 57% against the point spread. Um, the guy I interviewed in my book, a guy named Bob Vlogaris, probably the best NBA basketball better in, in the world today. He only gets 57% of his bets right. So it's really over the long run that you make your money potentially. So in that context, uh, uh, um, having gone kind of, uh, having a, a lot on the line, I didn't make any bets, right? But I did have a lot of career stakes on the line in, in having Obama win. Um, but you know, he was a 90% favorite by, by election day, right? Um, so I was still, uh, very nervous, but when I used to play poker, in poker, you're thrilled to get your money in as a 60-40 favorite, usually. You're thrilled. It's hard to do that, you know? If you're a 70-30 favorite, you're pumping your fist, right? So, um, although I was nervous on election day, um, uh, the fact that uh, things had swung toward Obama toward the end uh, uh, made it a pretty good bet to take. Okay, that's good. Let's go to the uh, man of the, the tan sweater in the back here. It's Stanley Peñal uh, at The Economist. It's actually another question about betting. Uh, you mentioned the wisdom of crowds, and you mentioned some of the shortcomings of, of polling, um, and yet I wanted to know what you think of prediction markets. Uh, there was a lot of excitement in 2004, 2008, 2012 on Intrade and, and others, and my sense is they've never really lived up to their promise. But what do you think they can offer now, and what do you think they might be able to offer in future? So there, there are a couple of issues that were, that were somewhat new this year. Um, one of them is that you had a big spread between Intrade's prices and prices uh, at other prediction markets. Or here, for example, you can actually bet, uh, bet at Ladbrokes or whatever, um, where at some point, you know, there are points in which you had Obama as an 80% favorite on, uh, on the UK bookie lines, but like only a 60% favorite on in-trade. So that spoke to a lack of um, liquidity in the market, in part. Um, you also don't have enough, enough money invested for necessarily serious gamblers to get involved. Um, you know, I, I've, met, I've met a fair number of very serious gamblers when I used to play poker, and you know, and for them, um, if there's not the prospect to make some five-figure sum, that's, they don't really think it's worth their time necessarily. So in Intrade, we have bets in the hundreds of dollars. It's mostly recreational bettors instead. Um, if you really wanted to make money on the election, then you, you would play the stock market, where the day after Obama won, um, you saw oil and gas stocks lost billions of dollars in market capitalization, certain types of healthcare stocks that will benefit from Obamacare probably remaining in place gained lots and lots, hundreds of millions of dollars in market cap. So um, you can place a bet on, on the stock market, and I don't think we have, uh, um, there are too many constraints now to trading to make these markets highly efficient. Um, with that said, it's very difficult to beat robust markets, certainly. Um, and even with, all their, uh, even with all their awards, I think the, the in-trades and so forth provide a, a good check on, on the pundits, right? And compared to the pundits, they, they do pretty well for themselves. And, um, you know, Americans are, are, are are very silly, I think, about our attitude toward, <laughs> toward gambling in a lot of ways, where um, um, Intrade had a variety of problems that have actually been, been shut down now, right? But they said, well, let's provide no useful information to, to traders. Well, look, um, in the US in particular, in other contexts now, a lot of the macroeconomic risk 
is political risk. Um, and it would be very useful in some ways to be able to, to hedge those risks to build a portfolio, make whether other, other, other investment decisions you have to make. So to have political betting markets is, seems just as necessary as betting on commodity prices or something. So I'd rather have markets that are, are rich and robust. You'll still have all the problems that you have in any type of market, but then you'd have, you would have some of these quirks caused by, by um, high transaction costs and, and low volumes. The woman in the, with her glasses on top of her head in the last row. <laughs> and another betting question. Are you allowed into casinos? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I am. Uh, I, don't, I don't count cards at blackjack. So in poker, actually, uh, uh, you know, this is a case where I played poker and made a decent amount of money at it from about 2004 to 2006. Um, what had happened, you had in 2003, you had a guy named um, Chris Moneymaker, who was kind of a, a schlubby accountant. Um, deposited $20 in a site called Poker Stars and won some ticket to the World Series of Poker and kept parlaying it up and eventually won the World Series for, for $2 million. Um, and this guy was a guy who was actually a, a pretty mediocre player. I mean, not terrible. Okay, but not great, right? Um, but ESPN showed the coverage and they, and they cut out all the hands that he lost, that he played badly, right? And they also show you what the other players had. So if you had X-ray vision, right, you could get rid of your 20% of your worst hands, then um, you'd probably play poker really, really well. Um, and that's what it looked like on TV. It looked much easier than it was. You had kind of a, a bubble, I think. It was called the poker boom, but it really was kind of a, a bubble where people were willing to lose all sorts of money playing poker for a bit and that evaporated now. Um, but now the poker games are, are really, really very sophisticated, um, where uh, the decisions that the best no-limit hold'em players now um, are, are very, very close to being unexploitably kind of game theory optimal, where they know how to vary and balance their play in very complex sorts of ways. Part of it is you play poker online now, then you can play tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of hands in a year, so you actually do reach the long run, and they actually have kind of devised long-run equilibrium strategy. So it's, it's really tough now to actually um, to, to, to beat a poker tournament once you've gotten to the most exclusive sets of players. There are still some bad guys that walk in the casino. You can take their money at first. But I do it for, for fun now. Um, but the poker players are, are really quite savvy. So the rest of you stick to gambling in the financial market. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. Let's go upstairs, sort of dead center upstairs, the man with a red tie. Hi. In your, in your book, you talk about the reliability of weather forecasts. To what extent do you think your political forecasts, your probabilistic political forecasts are reliable? And uh, should I prefer reliability over accuracy? Uh, well, so I'm not sure how to distinguish, I guess, reliability from, <laughs> from accuracy. I mean, you know, I think the best metric in the long run is, is calibration. So it means that... Um, so of all the elections that are 90, 10 elections, we should get 9 of those 10 right. Um, if we get 10 out of 10 right, it's actually bad. That means the model has been miscalibrated. Um, I wouldn't complain particularly, right? Um, but in a fiscal sense, then, um, then you're supposed to uh, uh, be true to your probabilities over, over the long run. And the weather forecasters, the undiluted information from the National Weather Services actually does that for the most part. Of course, people find all kinds of ways to, uh, to mess it up. But, you know, but there, are, there is another kind of implicit maybe question here, too, which is that... Uh, um, when there's uncertainty about, when there's structural uncertainty about how you're building a model, then, um, then you have to be a little bit more careful than just saying, oh, it's, you know, I got unlucky, right? So we have a, a, a formula for predicting how the NCAA tournament will do. It's a very simple system. There are thousands of data points to test it. So, you know, so we can really say, well, if we had a team with a 95% chance to win and the 5% probability came up instead, 
you can really say in that case, kind of objectively, I got unlucky. Um, in cases where you could design the model in a lot of different ways and you have relatively little data to test it by, then you can't make those excuses as, as automatically, right? Um, you know, the credit rating agencies can't claim to be having unlucky because a, a one in one billion chance in their model came up and, and there was a housing crash or whatever else and things defaulted, right? They made faulty assumptions that some people identified ahead of time. And so, so, um, so it gets tricky, you know? And also you need a lot of data. So um, it would take kind of the rest of my lifetime for you to really know a statistical significance test whether, whether I'm better than, than a competitive a competitor of mine at forecasting the presidential race. Looking at, at Senate races and House races where you have more data points actually would probably tell you a bit more where presidential primaries and so forth, where you have more trials. Although well, we know pretty immediately that an aggregation strategy is better than yeah, a single so there's something, polling, right? That's part of it also, right? It's part of way emphasizing my book in, in fields where there's ambiguity about the data. They're looking to principles of these kind of broad things I've outlined from other fields where at least you know that your, your practice and your process is is probably right. Um, when you have limited data, then, think, then you have to be more and more concerned about, right. about process and best practices. Right. And in black, on the, yeah, right there. Thank you. Um, we've mentioned uh, UK elections a couple of times as opposed to um, US ones. Um, you ran some models for the UK elections in 2010. Um, and they, fair to say, didn't have the same level of accuracy as the ones you did. <laughs> You're being for, polite, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what went wrong? Um, Nick Clegg. No, I, I don't know. I think uh, <laughs> many couple, people think that. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> there, there are a couple of things. I mean, one issue you have is that when you have a, a three-party uh, race, or arguably you could have a four-party race in the UK next time, um, there are a lot more dynamics. Um, a lot more vectors by which voters can move from one way to the other. Um, and, so, and so, for example, there were a lot of volatility in the polls in the U.S. in 92 when Ross Perot was a factor. And in primaries, I mentioned that dynamic earlier about, about Rick Santorum gaining tactical support from Bachman and so forth in the end. So that increases the uncertainty a lot. Um, also, we don't really have very many polls here um, at the individual constituency level. So you're making That's inferences true. about... Uh, about how well the seats would map out from past elections plus but very crude data. Whereas in the US, if you looked only at national polls, um, you would have had Obama still ahead by the end, but you would characterize the race very differently, almost saying, oh, it is too close to call. Whereas state polls uh, uh, have been more robust in the long run and give you a much clearer picture. I mean, I think the big, um, the big mistake I made in, uh, in that context was not, was not presenting the forecast with confidence intervals, right? We said, well, here are our point predictions is kind of a beta phase. It's always happens to say, oh, this is models in beta, right? You know, kind of covering your ass, right? So we tried to do that. But, um, but we were trying to measure the uncertainty as much, to measure the fact that when you have this dynamic three-way race, that um, I guess the contention of the model was that if, uh, if Lib Dem vote had held up, it would have taken more and more votes away from Labor to push conservatives into kind of a, a fairly large majority. Um, so conditionally, that hypothesis might be right, but, uh, but if you didn't catch the little surge that uh, there was away from Lib Dems and toward Labor in the end, then you wound, we wound up being pretty far off. And, and you'd say, well, that can happen, but I didn't also measure the uncertainty in the forecast, so I can't, I can't excuse myself too much. So uh, if we do something in 2015, then we'll try and make it probabilistic and, and, um, you know, and account for where the uncertainty lies. But we heard the if. Okay, if, yeah, let's go in the what is it, fourth row there, the man in the vest. Yes. 
Hi, have you looked at uh, the financial markets yet? And uh, if not, do you think it might be fruitful for you to try your hand at predicting them in the future? <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of uh, very smart people who have tried to beat the markets and have failed, failed fairly miserably. Um, I'm, I'm not someone who says that, uh, that markets are purely efficient. In fact, it's, it's only the belief that there's some inefficiency, some noise trading that, that compels people to make trades at all in theory, but, um, but the water level there is, is, is pretty high. And also, you can kind of free ride off the kind of average investor's portfolio just by buying an index fund, basically. So I try not to be too much more sophisticated uh, than that, really. I mean, who knows? Maybe, I'll be, maybe if Romney had won, right? I'd be like, fuck it, maybe I'll work for a hedge fund. Uh, <laughs> but Obama won instead, so. <laughs> all right. that's, that's almost a note to end on. Let's take one last question. Just the person right next to you there. Yeah. Yeah, politicians like to um, selectively pick polls or manip manipulate polls in a way to make them look like they're pretty popular. Are they right to do this? Is there any evidence to show that the public responds to a uh, popular politician by switching their vote towards that, pol that politician if a, if a poll comes out and shows them more popular than they were before? I mean, well, there are, there are some uh, bandwagon effects, but there are also issues here where... Um, so Romney, for example, had a big uh, bounce after the first debate in Denver. It was, I think, on average, four points between the different polls. Um, but there were a few polls that, instead of surveying a new group of people, went back and recontacted the same people. And there, his bounce was much less, only about 1% instead. Um, so one question that arose is, um, was there a real shift of opinion, or was there a difference in response rates? When only 10% of people are responding, the people were more enthusiastic and so you had an artificial effect based on, on these temporary swings in enthusiasm in the polls, but not the actual underlying electoral preferences instead. So it's a complicated thing to figure out. Um, you know, I think all things being equal, you'd, you'd rather have voters think you're going to win than you're going to lose. Another factor here is that um, uh, you have other players in the race. You have people who are funding campaigns in the U.S. with very big money. Um, there was a risk for Romney that if, uh, if he hadn't recovered after the first debate, the GOP donors, the Koch brothers and so forth, would, would say, um, we're going to try and make sure that we save the House um, and we're going to kind of cut bait on Romney. A very rational decision potentially on their part, but that means that uh, sometimes where you stand in the polls can influence that type of tactical behavior. Or whether people go and vote. Or whether people go and vote, yeah. Right. In, in general, people, you know, people do turn out more when the election's close. You can see that uh, holding other factors constant that states like Ohio and Virginia and Colorado have higher turnout rates because people think their vote counts. So it's never, never, never a bad thing to think that your vote matters. I'm going to guess the vote's not close tonight. Uh, join me in thanking Nate Silver. Thank you, guys.